we just confessed from Romans, how beautiful are the, vo the feet of those who preach the good news. I do not uh, claim to have beautiful feet, but we are going to learn from the beautiful feet of the Apostle Paul who gave us this gospel. Romans is a beautiful, a beautiful book of scripture. But I want to ask you a question as we begin. What is Romans? Not a rhetorical question. You can shout out and tell me. What is Romans? It's a letter. That's right. Written by who? Paul. By Paul. And who was Paul? He was an apostle. What does apostle mean? A sent one. That's right. It's easy when we come to uh, the various books of Scripture to think of them as something that was simply dropped down from heaven in this kind of abstract uh, kind of way. And we forget that the books of the Bible were written by human beings. And as we come to these letters, like the letters of Paul, they were written by a person as real as you or I sitting here, flesh and blood, with real problems, with a real calling. And yet, of course, Paul, in a very unique way, also one chosen by God to contribute to what we call infallible Holy Scripture. But we can be tempted when we place upon letters like Paul's letter to the Romans, when we place upon it very true doctrinal things like it's infallible, it's inspired. We can remove the human element and miss a big portion of what these books and these letters mean and how it really intersects with our own lives. Paul, a real person like you and me, wrote a letter because in his real life that he really lived, he had a mission to bring a message to the ends of the earth. Paul, someone as real as you and me, was confronted on the road to Damascus. As he was on his way to persecute Christians, and the Lord Jesus appears to him, from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this real person, as flesh and blood as you and me, was confronted by the risen Jesus and set apart to be a gospel, an apostle to the Gentiles. And just as you and I have conflicts in our life, Paul was filled with them. Indeed, Paul was told how much he would suffer for the name of Christ, for the, for the responsibility, for the privilege to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He would suffer in his real flesh that he had like you and me. And I think that is important to remember as we read the letters of Paul or the letters of Peter. They were real people who lived in this real world and yet were set apart by God to proclaim an eternal message. And what we learn from Paul in Romans is how critical the gospel is. 
how fundamental, how essential the gospel is. Indeed, the gospel is how we begin, it's how we continue, and it's how we complete our mission as a church. It is all about the gospel. As this sent one, capital A, apostle, Paul's goal was to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in the days of the Roman Empire, Spain was viewed as the ends of the inhabited earth. That was the end of the inhabited region of the world. And Paul's aim was to go there. So that the gospel might be proclaimed where the name of Jesus is unknown. But he had a problem. He had a big problem. And that is that the gospel was being threatened in Rome. That the gospel was being perverted and twisted and misunderstood. One author wrote a book called Reading Romans Backwards. And we get to the end of the letter, which we will see in our course of time today, and discover more about the problems that are at hand in Rome. And we'll look at that at the end. But it can be a helpful exercise in your own study to read the end and then go back and work your way through. But what we find in this letter is that Jew and Gentile misunderstandings of the gospel is leading to Jew and Gentile divisions in the church. Misunderstandings about the role of the law of Moses. Misunderstandings about what is required to be a faithful member of Christ's church. Misunderstandings about the role of the law and faith are leading to lifestyles and divisions in the church that are not consistent with the gospel. They're not in step with the gospel. And indeed, the fundamental division that is threatening the unity of the church is all about misunderstandings regarding the gospel. You know, more than that, as we consider the, the book of Acts, as well as Paul's other letters, we know that everywhere Paul is going, there are people saying, he's not giving you the, the truth. There are people undermining, whether Jew or Gentile or false teachers are undermining Paul's ministry wherever he goes. And Paul knows that if we do not get the gospel right, everything falls. If we do not get the gospel right, everything falls. And that's just as true for us today. So we would do well to learn from Paul what is the gospel and what does that mean for how we live? What is the gospel and how does that mean for what we live? If you look at page four of your worship folder, I've included an outline of the gospel of Romans or the Paul's epistle to Romans. And we are going to look at this letter then in five parts today, just in brief, a brief overview. We see that Paul introduces his gospel mission in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. 
Then the second major section of the book, he's going to defend the gospel of God in chapters 1 to 8. And then he's going to go on and defend God's plan of salvation. How on earth can Gentiles participate in this in light of what Paul just said about the gospel? What about Jews? He's going to defend God's plan of salvation. And then in chapters 12 to 15, he's going to defend the gospel life, what then it means to live in light of the gospel. And then he's going to conclude by addressing gospel threats in the church, things that are threatening the church in Rome and the gospel mission. So let's begin with the introduction. As people are going around claiming that Paul, either he's weak, he's misinformed, he doesn't understand what the Messiah, Jesus Messiah, was about, Paul begins this letter by staking a claim at who he is and what he's called to do. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. At the beginning here, Paul is crystal clear that the gospel that he is preaching, that sometimes he will call as my gospel, or others may say, oh, that's just Paul's gospel. Paul begins by saying, this is not my gospel. This is the gospel of God. This is, in other words, God's good news. I'm not, I'm not self-appointed. I didn't just choose to do this one day. I was called as an apostle and set apart for God's good news, God's gospel. And what was he called to do? Look at verse 5. That he had received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. The gospel ministry that Paul was set apart for was to bring about obedience in all nations, the obedience of faith. And we're going to see that that obedience includes both a right understanding, a right theological understanding of what God's gospel is. But it also includes, that obedience of the faith also includes how we live in light of that gospel, in light of that theological proclamation. In other words, the obedience of faith requires the head, the heart, and the hands. As Paul comes to Rome, everything seems to be on the line. As it seems like the church in Rome is falling apart. Paul will go on in chapter 1 to talk about his desire to see them. He praises God because their faith is proclaimed in all the world. But he reminds them in verse 14, again, this principle of going to all nations. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
this whole letter, I know I've entitled it The Gospel of God. We could also expand that and call it Romans Defending the Gospel of God. Here then Paul lays out in the following verses, in verses 16 and 17 then, his main argument. Where he says, I, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, which we read in our scripture reading. The righteous shall live by faith. Paul is coming, and some might say, look, Paul's coming to Rome with his tail tucked between his legs. He should be ashamed of what he's saying. You know, the, just imagine it. Paul, they're accusing Paul of, you're minimizing the Jews. You have forsaken the Jews. You have forsaken God's promises to be faithful to Israel. How is this good news? You're forsaking the law of Moses. This man is corrupt. This man is distorting the truth. He should be ashamed. Shame on you, Paul. But what does he say? I'm not ashamed of the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul has set out now what he's going to do in this letter He's going to defend the gospel that he is by no means ashamed of. So now let's get into it. What is that gospel that he is defending against his detractors? Now let's turn to the second section of this book, as we see in the worship folder. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 8. I've included the main theological headers as Paul moves forward through the gospel, if you look at the worship folder there, Paul teaches and defines the gospel around four main ideas. Four main ideas. Condemnation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. So if you want to sharpen your understanding of the gospel, Paul gives us four helpful buckets to put the good news in. All the good news of the Old Testament and what Jesus did in fulfilling it can be comprehended in these four buckets as we think about the gospel. And he moves through a series of questions, moving from condemnation to glorification, and then in chapter 8, he gives this wonderful conclusion. It is God who justifies, then who can condemn? What should we make of these things? But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Obviously, we don't have time to go in depth, but I want to give you an overview then of this section. So let's first deal with condemnation. The good news actually begins with bad news. The good news begins with bad news. In Romans 1 verse 18, we read uh, a very oft-quoted 
section of Paul, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And Paul goes on to talk about how God's creation itself reveals his invisible attributes. He goes on to talk about how these unrighteous men, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He talks about how they claim to be wise, probably pointing at the wisdom of the Greeks. Wisdom was everything in the Greco-Roman culture. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So just imagine this. As the, if you're a Jew reading this, a Jewish Christian, you're like, yes, 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 Paul is nailing them. Yes. He goes on to talk about their lusts and impurities. More on their idolatry. He goes on in verse 26 to talk about their dishonorable passions, their homosexuality. The same kinds of moral issues we face today. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You can see if you're a Jewish Christian reading this, you're like, yes, God is nailing the pagan Gentiles, or Paul, sorry, Paul is condemning and damning the pagan Gentiles. And Paul says how God gives them up to a debased mind. Verse 28. But then Paul turns the screws on the Jews. In verse 2, sorry, chapter 2, he turns and says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly, on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And Paul will go on to talk about how God shows no partiality for the Jew or the Greek. Romans one thirty two though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And Paul is telling the Jews, you who know better, do you think you will escape God's judgment when you do the very same things? Paul says in Romans 2.17, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, 
a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul concludes this section on condemnation, reminding the Jews and Gentiles that no one is righteous. Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? So here, this is, uh, this is, here you see Paul talking to the Jews in the Christian community of Rome. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and Paul cites a number of Old Testament passages, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And then he concludes this opening section on condemnation. In light of that, look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be saved. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As you study the letter of Romans on your own, and you study this section, note how Paul uses the law in two ways. This is something that can make studying uh, Paul's letters sometimes confusing, because he doesn't use the law in one way. Sometimes when Paul is referring to the law, he's talking about God's moral law. Sometimes when Paul refers to the law, he's talking about the law of Moses or the Mosaic Code, the thing that is done away. The moral law, I'm just going to point you to one place. In verse 15 is the law that it's written on every man's conscience, every man, woman, and child that was ever born. We see in Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So as you study Romans for yourself, you need to determine what law is Paul talking about at this moment because that was one of the fundamental misunderstandings about, uh, about the gospel, right? If, if we are saved by something other than the law, well, then can we live however we want? Paul's going to go on and say no. But are we justified by following the law of Moses? And Paul's going to say no. So you need to distinguish what law. Is it the moral law, the law written on the heart, the conscience that Paul is speaking of, or the law of Moses? Those, those are really important distinctions. The Mosaic covenant and the old code that is done away with. That's one of the fundamental misunderstandings of the early church as we see here in Rome. And I think it's still one that we misunderstand today as well. 
but it's vital that we get it. It's vital that we get it. <clears throat> well, then let's move forward to justification. If everybody is damned, if everybody is condemned, well, then where's the good news? And we find it as we move to the section on justification. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This would be the law of Moses and the prophets. Although they bear witness to it. Verse 22. The righteous, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, it was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul's saying that the good news for the church in first century Rome and for us today is something that is different than the law. It's other than the law. It's a different category than the law. But nevertheless, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words... Moses was a prophet pointing to something greater. The law of Moses was pointing to something beyond itself. That the law had a function, but that function wasn't to save Israel. It was to point them to their need for a savior, right? It was to show that the Old Testament sacrifices that couldn't save Israel was pointing to a sacrifice that could. It was pointing to a propitiation. That's a, a, a $5 word for a fancy word for just saying atonement. To satisfy the justice of God and God's covenantal requirements. There was a greater sacrifice needed. There was a greater sacrifice needed. And it was going to be separate from the law, but the law and the prophets point to it. It's the atonement of Jesus Christ, verse 24. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, as a propitiation or as an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. We are justified by faith. In verse 26, this is to show, well, let me read verse, the rest of verse 25 too. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. See all those sacrifices of the Old Testament? were a signpost to something greater. But they in themselves couldn't forgive any sins. But nevertheless, they were pointing to them. It was something Israel was to do. 
but it was all to prepare them for the coming Messiah who would be the true means by which God would deal with even the sins of those in the Old Testament. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, Jesus would both be just because he, or God would be just because he did finally deal and punish the sins of Israel in the past and justify them. But he's also the one who through faith justifies Old Testament and New Testament saints by the same faith. In other words, God forgave of the Old Testament saints in advance. He gave them forgiveness in Christ in advance before Jesus came so that he could be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. To defend this claim that the law and the prophets spoke of this reality that we would be justified by faith, Paul points to two illustrations in the Old Testament, Abraham and then Adam. And we don't have time to look at both of them, but I want to look just briefly at Abraham in chapter 4, and we'll pass through this quickly. But Paul is telling the Jewish Christians that are struggling with this idea that we're justified by faith and not works of the law. Well, look at Abraham. How is he counted righteous? How is he counted righteous? Was it because he was circumcised? No. Was it because he followed the law of Moses? No, Moses hadn't even come yet. How then was Abraham justified? And Paul says in Romans 4, 3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here now Paul is showing how the law and the prophets point to this principle that we'll be justified by faith. Look back at Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteous, righteousness. He points to David in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul says in verse 11, kind of moving in halfway through verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father, that is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but one who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, to put it in my own language and to use a, a children's song, Father Abraham had many sons. But Abraham's sons were not merely sons of Israel, of his biological descendants. But the sons of Abraham are all the men and the women and children who put their faith in Jesus no matter what their biological pedigree is. 
is the father of nations and that he is the father of faith and the means by which men and women and children from every nation are enfolded into Christ's church through faith in him and become heirs of the promise. Paul concludes in verse 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the way of peace with God is through faith. But let's move to the section on sanctification then. Chapter 6. If we're justified by faith apart from the law, does that mean then that we can live however we want? Can we just go about doing what we want? You know, our flesh is condemned. We're going to be raised to new life. Can we go about sinning if we put away the law of Moses? And Paul says no. Verse 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in baptism, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. In this section, Paul says, by no means, those who are justified by faith in Jesus, who have been baptized, who are followers of Christ, they have been raised that they might walk in newness of life. Verse 4. Verse 12 then, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You know, I was told early on by some of my Norwegian colleagues and the same thing uh, happened in the U.S. too, but there is this no lordship theology circling, this kind of idea that if, uh, if you're baptized or if you at one time placed your faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live anymore. He'll save you. He can be your savior, but not your Lord. He can be your savior, but not your Lord. Even indeed, if we look at Eastern Orthodoxy today, I was doing some study on that uh, a few weeks ago. They believe that if you're baptized you are really truly regenerated and that if you're chrismated, having holy oil put on you, you are really truly indwelled by the Holy Spirit and that no matter how negligent you are for the rest of your life, you will always be indwelled by the Spirit. Right? So both we see modern manifestations of this, no lordship theology. Jesus can be your savior. He doesn't have to be your Lord or tell you how to live. Or we see it as something that's infected the church for a long, long time, going back to the tradition of Eastern Orthodoxy. But Paul says, by no means. Do not let sin reign any longer in your mortal bodies, but present your body to be an instrument of righteousness. In Romans 7, Paul moves into dealing with the conflict between the law and sin 
and we don't have time to look into all of that this morning, but I, in this section, again, it's important to distinguish when he's talking about the law of Moses versus the moral law. And at the end of the matter, Paul wrestles with the fact that if we've been justified by faith, why do we keep wrestling with sin? Right? If your gospel is such good news, then why do we keep fighting sin? Why is it not eliminated? And he concludes the, dis the discussion in Romans 7, 21. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I have counseled numerous young disciples who question their salvation because they continue to wrestle with sin. And that they view the fact that they are wrestling with sin as a sign that they are not actually Christians, that they're not saved. But what we find in this section is quite the opposite. Paul says, I've got my flesh that I'm waging war with. But what is waging war with it? It's the renewed mind. Verse 25, I, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Wretched man that I am. That indeed, the sign that you are saved is the fact that you are wrestling with sin. Those of you that came to Christ as adults, were you really worried about sin before Christ? You weren't. Those that are not saved, they're not worrying about sin. The very fact that you are worrying about sin is a sign that the Spirit is at work in you. The very fact that your conscience is pricking you is a sign that the Spirit is at work in you. So far from wrestling with sin being a sign that you're not saved, it's a sign that God loves you and he is renewing you. But in this life, as long as we're in our sinful bodies, we're going to fight a battle. And it's an internal battle. It's our renewed mind fighting with our flesh. So that in other letters, Paul will talk about it as the old man. I'm still living in the old man, the old flesh, the old tent that is waging against my renewed mind. And so sanctification is something then that we wrestle. It's an act of wrestling with sin. And that's all I have time to say about it. But I want you to think about that as you read in your own studies in Romans 6 to 7 about that wrestling, that waging war. But the fight, hear this, beloved, the fight against sin is not a sign that you're not saved. It's a sign that God is saving you. The very act that you hate sin 
but still wrestle with it is a sign that God loves you and is saving you. We move then to glorification. Paul in Romans 8 begins to deal with life in the spirit. Then what does life mean that we live by the spirit? He's going to show how it, how it ends in this thing we call glorification. That the renewal of the spirit and sanctification is pointing us and preparing us for glory. And the good news ends with some really great good news. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Look at verse 23. Not only creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul concludes then in this glory that's to be revealed, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in, whom, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, if you get part of it, you get all of it. Paul then concludes, what should we say to the gospel? <laughs> right? Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? This whole gospel of condemnation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, we are heirs of the earth, of the cosmos. With Christ, he who did not spare the most precious thing of all, his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of God? of Christ. Indeed, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. So Paul brings it back to the beginning. In light of this good news, who then can condemn us? False teachers? People who misunderstand the gospel? No. It's God who justifies. Who then can condemn? So the gospel in four concepts, we've got that this morning, condemnation, justification, sanctification, glorification. Let that be your framework as Paul gives it to us to understand the good news. It's interesting that we get a little bit of a top and tail with the gospel. Remember in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen what? Short of the glory of God. And then we get in chapter 8, how Creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. 
we are restored to glory, the glory we fell from, by faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's the gospel. And Paul concludes with the everlasting love of God. This is God's love. It's loving that he condemned because he also justifies and sanctifies and glorifies. I'm just going to give you a way to think about the next section in light of time this morning. But Paul then goes on to defend God's plan of salvation. Because for the Jews are like, this doesn't sound like what we were expecting. Right? I think even the Jewish Christians, the apostles themselves, as we see in Acts 1, were waiting for Jesus to the Messiah, to restore the kingdom to Israel, they were still looking with this narrow view that it was Israel that was going to be redeemed and saved. And they, did, they were blind to all the places in the Old Testament that talk about the gospel going to the nations too. And so in chapters 9 to 11, Paul is dealing with, he's, in other words, he's defending God's plan of salvation. He deals with the election of the Gentiles, and he shows from Scripture, from the Old Testament. It wouldn't be the Old Testament to them, but that's how we refer to it now. He shows from Scripture how Scripture foretold of the election of the Gentiles. But then he goes on to deal with the preservation of remnant Israel. He'll say not all God's not saving every biological Israelite, but he is preserving a remnant, those he foreknew. And so Paul deals with that. Paul, these are probably some of the most tough passages in the Bible and one that even Christians that believe the gospel really wrestle with, election. Because it rubs at the number one thing that we by nature love, our own personal autonomy and freedom and choice. And Paul makes no claims to solve all the matters he simply concludes with this doxology of the mystery of God. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Chapter 11, verse 34. Well, verse 33, let me read there. Oh, the depths of the riches in wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. If you've ever had difficulty understanding election, and the sovereignty of God, it's because it's inscrutable. God's wisdom and plan is inscrutable. We can't ultimately understand it fully. The best we can do is believe what is written and not to, to take away from what is written. But at the end, Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thus ends the gospel proper. We've seen Paul defend the gospel of God, and we've seen Paul defend God's plan of salvation. This is what I'll encourage you to study yourself in your own homes and personal quiet times. But I want to end um, just in brief, because we're pressed for time, to remind us that the gospel doesn't end with intellectual knowledge. 
the gospel doesn't end with intellectual knowledge and faith doesn't end with subscription in doctrinal truths. Faith produces fruit. And just as Paul talked about the newness of life that we've been raised to as the church, he expounds on that in chapters 12 to 15. And he uses the theme of worship. He sets up this section as worship. If you look at the outline on page 4, from chapter 12 to 15, 13, he talks about Rome's spiritual worship. He sets this up as their spiritual worship. And then in chapter 15, verse 14, Paul talks about his priestly mission. Paul views that both like as congregants and a priest, they both have things to do. I think that's interesting that Paul couches this as worship, and rightly so. And I just want to look at verses, uh, at Romans 12, 1 to, and 2, and then I'll let you take it from there. And God willing, we'll preach through this book at some course in our life together. But I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, everything that I just said, the gospel and defending God's plan of salvation for Jew and Gentile, in light of those mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's your spiritual worship. And remember that sign that the spirits at work in us, that our renewed minds are at war with the law of our flesh, that it's not a sign that we're not saved, it's a sign that we are saved. He picks up this theme again. Do not be, con verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, right? Do not obey the passions of your flesh, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then he's going to go on to talk about body life, how you use your gifts to serve one another in the proportion of faith that God's is assigned. In 12.9, he's going to talk about marks of a true Christian. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Do your best to live peaceably with all. In this section, he's going to deal with matters of eating and drinking, which were a main hindrance to, Ro to Jewish and Gentile fellowship in the church, dealing with matters of conscience, the weak and the strong. And he ends by pointing to the example of Christ. This whole section on spiritual worship ends with the example of Christ, where Paul says in Romans 15, Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, that is to edify him, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so then Paul prays in verse 5 for their endurance. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. I know your, you women are going to be doing a study that the gospel comes with a house key. Welcome one another. But all the more as the church, as Jew and Gentile, welcome one another. 
know, we have a different kind of, I don't know, you know, what some of our challenges, I know, I know what some of our challenges are, but uh, in terms of being a multi-ethnic church, you know, I don't know what challenges we'll face over the years. Um, I, I, by God's grace, I don't, I'm not aware of any, uh, of any cross-cultural issues. If there are, please tell me. But we're going to have different values, different systems, different ways we eat, different ways we talk with one another. That's going to be a result of different cultures. So this still applies to us today. How do we welcome one another and treat one another like family as we ought to treat one another? Because family, is it does, it's not according to Norwegian or Swedish or Polish or Indonesian or South African or American lines. It's according to Christ's blood who had saves us who covers us who by which we are adopted into his family and so all of this fruit of living actually has to do with how we treat one another you know we don't take the gospel and then go home and kind of be holier than thou in our personal lives not caring about others all this gospel fruit actually deals with how we live with one another indeed my friends indeed and i want i'm going to close with this and then point you to chapter 16 I think the most critical issue that we will face as a church is not defining good theology, but it's actually living in light of it. It's actually easy, and you know, you find this as a young seminary student or, or young students, men or women, studying scripture. We get really excited about fighting over doctrine. And we really don't think at all about how we live and conduct ourselves in the church. And that if we want to mature as a church and as a mission, it's not merely having good theology, but it's also living in light of it. Putting money where our mouth is, right? It's, it's got to it's gotta make that treacherous journey, that treacherous 18-inch, I don't know what it is in centimeters, that, that treacherous journey from here to here and then out to here. God wants all of us, when he justifies us by faith, it's not just to grab our minds. It's our whole being. And as Paul wants to bring the gospel to all nations and have Rome's help in going to Spain, everything hinges on that. Right doctrine, but also right living as spiritual worship to God. He concludes by greeting a number of people. I think that's part of his rhetorical strategy. But then he points to the principal issue. He says in chapter 16, uh, verse 17, these final instructions, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with, be with you.
and then he'll conclude with a doxology, including his reminder of his desire for the obedience of faith among all nations. But Paul's saying there's going to be people in and outside the church that you need to be wary of. There's going to be people in and outside the church that are have twisted doctrine. And whether they know it or not, they're actually, by their twisted doctrine, their misunderstanding of the gospel, will divide the church, will distort things, will cause divisions, will put obstacles to faith that are contrary to the gospel. That's why the gospel is everything. That's why our mission, our lives as Christians, and our mission as the church of Jesus Christ begins, continues, and is concluded by nothing other than the gospel. We must hold fast to the gospel. One of the most haunting warnings that I received in seminary was from D.A. Carson, um, pretty well-known New Testament scholar. And he warned us as students that what's assumed in one generation is forgotten in the next. When you study the history of the church and the history of faithfulness and then apostasy or veering away, what's assumed in one generation is forgotten in the next. So we have to, we have to fight together as brothers and sisters in the Lord to keep the gospel as the main thing, to understand the gospel rightly and to apply it. Because if we assume it in our lives, if we assume it in what we should do in the church, but we never talk about it, we never study it, we never think about it, it's going to be lost to our children and it's going to be lost to the coming generations. And maybe that's happened here. I know certainly it's happened in America where I come from. Maybe you've seen it happen where you come from too. But may we as a church contend for the gospel and keep it the main thing and not be ashamed of it. For it is the righteous, righteousness of God. So may we together say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to Norwegians and Swedes, to Indonesians, South Africans, to men and women in every continent. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let that be our glory, brothers and sisters, and the cause that we rally to defend. Let's pray.